0: Welcome to the Fourth U Dimension. My name is Ember Kelly, and I am the director of religious education at the Fourth Universalist Society in the city of New York. This month, our theme for our adult religious education is about uh, intersectionality, and in particular, we're looking at the issue of food justice. Intersectionality is this uh, big idea that different forms of oppression uh, interact and can cause people to uh, deal with multiple forms of oppression, and it's this this very broad idea, but we're looking at the specific instance this month of food justice. How does access to food, how does um, food available uh, in stores, how does grocery stores, how do these sort of issues uh, interact with other issues? And so as I was thinking about potential guests for this podcast, I couldn't help but think of uh, an, an activist and friend that I... Uh, that I know from Grand Rapids, Michigan, uh, a man of the, who's worn many hats uh, in the time that I have known him, uh, doing much, uh, much a variety of different type of work. Uh, Jeff Smith, and so Jeff Smith, uh, his his primary work has been with the Grand Rapids Institute for Information and Democracy, and I am so uh, excited to have you on the podcast today, Jeff. Uh, Thanks for having me. Would you like to to tell our audience a little bit about you?
1: Sure. Um... So, as you said, uh, I've been involved with uh, uh, the Grand Rapids Institute for Information Democracy, or we like to say just GRID, um, which historically has done a lot of um, media literacy, critical thinking about media, media watchdogging, and, um, and also uh, in more recent years, um, doing a lot of our own independent media, producing a lot of our own independent media. Um, but we, uh, we started a project that spun off out of GRID. Ten years ago, uh, called the Grand Rapids People's History Project, uh, and that came out of classes that we had been teaching. One of them, which was a sort of a history of um, U.S. social movements, and using you know following the work of Howard Zinn. And, and when Howard Zinn passed away in 2010, uh, a friend of mine said, "Hey, how about uh, how about doing a People's History of Grand Rapids?" And and I had to think about it for like three seconds, and like, yeah. Uh, that's a perfect idea. So, um, we also have a separate, um, um, website called the Grand Rapids People's History Project, uh, where we've been sort of researching and interviewing and writing about, uh, the rich history of, um, social movements, uh, in Grand Rapids, um, over the last 150 plus years or so. So, um, and then in addition to that, I've been, a community organizer for maybe 40 years in Grand Rapids in a variety of capacities. Um, I spent a fair amount of time working in uh, Central America and Chiapas, Mexico, doing accompaniment work or international solidarity work, uh, mostly in indigenous communities. Um, I I used to be a part of a housing collective called the Quinenia House. Um, lived there for 25 years, which was also a, a house that practiced radical hospitality, we took people in who were experiencing homelessness. Uh, And we also were part of the Central American Sanctuary Movement in the 80s and 90s and um, had Konghobal-speaking Mayans stay with us. Um, In terms of like uh, the food justice work, uh, I've been doing workshops uh, and education around that for the last 15 years or so. Uh, I myself have been a grower all my adult life. Um, I have uh, a big garden in my backyard and a greenhouse, and I do seed saving, I do lots of canning, and um, I started a project six years ago called Gardens for Grand Rapids, where we build raised beds and deliver them with soil and plants to people who are experiencing food insecurity as a way to to, uh, not perpetuate food charity, but as a way of providing people with the resources to maybe grow some of their own food and connect with the earth and, um, you know, hopefully that's a, that's a spark that leads to practicing more food justice in our own personal lives, but also um, looking at the larger food systems in itself. Um, and then just lastly, in terms of uh, what I've been up to, um, cause there's a lot of good organizing that's been taking place as we had talked to before we uh, went live here, which was that, um, Since the rebellion that took place in Grand Rapids after uh, the public lynching of George Floyd in in May, uh, this past of last year, um, there's been uh, a lot lot of work around um, Black Lives Matter. Uh, There's a defund the GRPD group, um, Movimiento Cosecho, immigrant rights group is still uh, organizing um, GR Rapid Response to ICE, which works a lot with Cosecha, which um, deploys those of us with lots of privilege to prevent ICE agents from actually taking uh, and detaining and deporting people. Um, and then um, besides that, then there's also, uh, um, since the COVID um, outbreak began, we have a group called the Grand Rapids Area Mutual Aid Network, which um raises money independently outside of sort of the traditional nonprofit industrial complex. And we provide direct funding to families, particularly those who are most marginalized, Black, Indigenous, Latinx, queer communities um, who are, uh, you know, struggling with rent, uh, food, um, healthcare, uh, all those kinds of things that um, a lot of people around the country are faced or are around the world for that matter are faced with, with the with the pandemic. So, and then, and then lastly, we, uh, we also recently started a Grand Rapids area tenant union to, to organize tenants and fight for uh, uh, an end to evictions and tenant justice, right? To fight the outrageous rental costs and all those kinds of things. So um, that's a little bit about me.
0: Yeah, well, and so for context, obviously you and I uh, both have a lot of experience of Grand Rapids, but for context for our listeners, uh, Grand Rapids is the basically a home base of the DeVos family of, of Betsy DeVos fame. Uh, it is the place where Trump chose to hold like his last rallies during both of the uh, campaigns. Uh, so it is, it is a very uh, interesting place to be to be doing this kind of work, and you know perhaps even more important why we need it.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, uh, Grand Rapids is an interesting hub, right? It has the highest, the um, largest wealth gap of any city in the city of in the state of Michigan. Not surprising because, again, not just of the Devosses, but other members of the what I like to refer to as the Grand Rapids power structure, um, who people who have all their who, folks who have names on buildings all over the place, um, and then it's sort of this interesting mix of. Uh, um, Calvinist, you know, um, values, uh, um, which justifies, you know, the wealth, uh, and, um, blames those who don't have it, you know, on their own failures kinds of things. Uh, and West Michigan is also Grand Rapids in general. It's also a, a, a place that practices, uh, white supremacy on a, on a high level. And I don't mean just the folks who wear hoods or you know, have, you know, Nazi tattoos. I mean, I mean, just the sort of the structural systemic kind of racism, or is what Todd Robbins, who wrote a really good book about history of racism in Grand Rapids refers to it as managerial racism, right? So um, the white power structure has, you know, is very good at and sophisticated as ways of trying to like, woo communities of color to not um, work for liberation, but to just, you know, Kind of um, accept whatever kind of charity and benevolence that the that the those in power might provide them with, you know. So it's definitely an interesting, interesting place to be. But it, as you said exactly, I think it's important. Right. Uh, people have asked me that question for a long time. Why do you stay? And I said, well, because the work needs to be done here, you know. And I also believe, which gets us back to the food justice thing. I believe what Wendell Berry, the Poet Farmer has been saying for decades is that it's important for us to just stay place and stay connected to a land base and stay rooted. And um, if our organizing is based on relationships, which it should be, then um, it's it's easier to have uh, a relational organizing model if you know a place and know the people. Uh, as opposed to just hopping around a lot. Uh, and, and, I, and again, I get that, that that happens. And sometimes it's unavoidable. But I think it's important that we, if we can, to just to put roots in and stay put in places in that. and that and, and so I'm, I'm glad to be able to do that here.
0: No, I get that I get that I, I I've I found myself. Uh, even having a little bit of a, a longing for Grand Rapids, occasionally something that when I first arrived in two thousand six, uh, never never thought would happen. Um, <laughs> but I did, you know, end up spending twelve years there, and it is definitely a very uh, interesting uh, activist community. And I think that, especially, you mentioned the the formation of the tenant unit or union, uh, and that that seems very important since it sounds like. Grand Rapids is probably one of the highest rising rents this year, like during the pandemic, because suddenly everybody decided they wanted to move away from a city like New York, where we've seen rents go down a little bit uh, and move to somewhere like Grand Rapids. Uh, So, uh, you know, the the rent conditions were already pretty horrible in Grand Rapids prior to the pandemic. And it sounds like they've only gotten worse.
1: Yeah, for sure. They've gotten worse. And, you know, Grand Rapids has been for the last couple of years one of the primary hotspots in the country. Uh, in terms of housing market, right? Um, so there's, you know, it's not like they're building a lot of new houses here. Um, there's building building a lot of new condos and those kinds of things. But um, you know, the the notion of affordable housing, you know, however one defines that, is almost non-existent in this community. And um, people have literally seen their rent over the last ten years. People have seen their rent double or you know more than double. Um, while at the same time, maybe they're income has increased by if they're lucky 10 percent in that same period of time so um, uh, there's been a huge demographic shift and where people are living um, that's uh, been very interesting to see have take place so
0: so switching gears and getting into our discussion of food justice i'd be uh, curious what exactly does when i say the words food justice what does that mean to you
1: yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, it's a, it's a concept that's, you know, I think evolving in lots of ways. But I think, you know, on a very superficial level, uh, in, in terms of maybe providing a framework, it basically means that food justice means how do we work to ensure that the benefits and risks of where food is grown, what is grown, how it's grown, how it's produced, how it's transported, distributed, accessed, and eaten, is shared in a fair and just way right um so think about uh, maybe two things one is that what most people think of sometimes when they think of food justice is they'll think of food pantries which generally are not practitioners of food justice it's that's that follows the food charity model which has failed us miserably um and it also sort of perpetuates this whole kind of white saviorism right like because it tends to be white faith communities not exclusively but disproportionately as the case providing food assistance to people uh who are most marginalized right um and uh that's not that's not food justice at all um it's just it i'm not saying that pantries are a bad thing and inherently uh it's it's great that there are in it for emergency that people can get the food some nourishment that they need but um, but there's no connection to that to, that critiques the larger food system uh, and challenges it in such a way uh, because the goal of any food relief model should be to eliminate hunger. And none of them really do that. Even if they say they do, they don't because they're not really interested in challenging the existing food system. And then that's the other thing I wanted to say about food justice is that we have to recognize that we have a food system that's Primarily dictated by sort of a neoliberal capitalist framework, right? So we have agribusiness. We don't really have agriculture so much as any anymore. We have agribusiness, particularly in the United States, right? So you have a smaller number of people who are growing food on like you know thousand acres or more of land, um, mostly commodity crops uh, that um, that are heavily subsidized by the farm bill. Um, so farmers get paid uh, by the federal government to grow corn, to grow wheat, to grow uh, soy. You know those kinds of things. Um, whereas people who grow other kinds of, of staples, you know, other kinds of vegetables and legumes, um, don't get that, that, that because they're they're too small. Uh, so it's really the small farmers that have shrunken, and it's just sort of these larger agribusiness sort of structures, right? And then everything after that, in terms of who purchases it who are the commodity brokers, which is based upon sort of a Wall Street model, right? Um, The distribution, again, you don't have the sort of the ma and pa kind of grocery stores. It's mostly huge um, food chains. Uh, And then, um, you know, just just how food is sort of promoted and advertised, right? So uh, I always say to people, like, you know, you think about, food commercials that you see and disproportionately it's always either heavily processed foods or food that really, uh, um, is on, unhealthy for you, uh, to consume. Right. So a lot of fast food, a lot of processed stuff, a lot of sugar, uh, all those kinds of things. So you don't really see like commercials saying like, you know, eat carrots or, and all those kinds of things. Right. (laughs) I mean, you know, uh, um, well, a lot more sort of basic sort of staples. That's not the case. So the food system is really, again, it's a, it's a market-driven dynamic um, that has a tremendous amount of, like any other systems of power, it has all kinds of exploitation and oppression that's built into it. And we can get to that when we talk more about sort of the intersectional components.
0: Uh, well, definitely, and definitely, it makes me really think about COVID-19 and about how it's kind of, as you talked both about food pantries and about how the system works, COVID-19 has shown just, like, how how ridiculous both of those systems are. You have food pantry lines that are literally vehicles round miles and miles because people are so desperate for food. Uh, Or then you have people who can't get basic ingredients at a store because the whole supply chain is broken down because instead of growing anything locally, it's uh, maybe grown locally, exported to another country for packaging, sent back on a boat, and like suddenly that supply chain was disrupted. And right. it, I, th- I think it started to open people's eyes to just like how, how badly the system is actually structured.
1: Absolutely. I mean, around all kinds of issues, but definitely around food, it's, it's the case, right? It's sort of like, I mean, the universal declaration of, uh, of, of, of rights, human rights, right? One of the fundamental rights that's guaranteed is in this international document that the U.S. has been a signatory for more than half a century. Says is that food is a, food is an essential right that everybody has access should have access to food. Right, um, but you know that, that's all. It's a bit of a vague sort of concept, right? Because if people are hurting, if they're starving, if they're malnourished, if they're struggling to be able to feed their kids, uh, you can't even though there's food everywhere, right? You can't just walk into a grocery store. And grab, you know, the food that you need to feed you yourself and your children and walk out with it. Right. You got to pay for it. Uh, and particularly the healthier foods, more expensive. Um, so, uh, so there'll be consequences if you just choose to walk out with it. Right. So it's really not a right. I mean, it's a nice concept, but in practice that doesn't, that doesn't really fly. The really, the reality is, is that if you have money, if you have the means, the economic means to eat and to eat well, uh, then, then you can do it. But for a lot of people, that's not the case. So it's certainly tied to people having a living wage and uh, all the other kinds of things that, uh, again, that I think COVID, as you said, has really, uh, it has pulled the veil back, I think, on a lot of things to see like, look, the system is, has failed us miserably on so many ways. Uh, uh, and I think that's one of the benefits that have come out of this is that has, as you said, that I think more people are realizing that, oh, well, why is it that we can't <clears throat> get X, Y, and Z, you know, food or whatever it might be, these basic needs, because the the systems that are, uh, that control it uh, are not really designed to make sure that people's basic needs are met. It's made sure it's designed to profit a smaller, a small percentage of people uh, and to help with the rest of us.
0: Right. And, you know, while we do have this, uh, you know, global capitalist system that still is very much in place, like uh, I couldn't help but think as as I traveled abroad, how much even more like the U.S. seems to really discourage, like making healthier foods affordable uh, in any way. Meanwhile, making sure that like all the overprocessed, processed not very healthy uh, food is, you know, readily available uh, for cheaper. And like, it, it, it amazed me, like uh, traveling internationally and seeing that even other countries do a little bit better at prioritizing that um, uh, versus our country that, you know, has all these resources, but still doesn't care about prioritizing, making sure that people can get healthy food. Yeah. Um, uh, so what, what, what are some steps that we can take to really fight for this food justice, to fight for a world where people really truly do have access to food?
1: Yeah. Well, um, I mean that's a that's a huge question, but I think I think some you know some good steps for people to take uh, uh, are to think about again to to really you know do some lots of self education around what the food current food system we have what what that means and what that looks like and how it exploits and oppresses people right. So we rely tremendously uh, in this country on the labor of migrant workers for a great deal of our food. Um, Yet, not only have they historically, uh, they're they're only one of two sectors where a minimum wage is not guaranteed. So wait staff and migrant workers, right? So there's no minimum wage. They can pay whatever they want. Um, And it's usually piece rate. Um, So uh, people can't really live off, most of us could not live off that, right? And it's also very difficult work. Uh, Grand Rapids, West Michigan has actually the highest rate of migrant labor in the country after California and Florida, because of the uh, um, the land here, uh, uh, great climate for food production, Great Lakes, all those kinds of things is sort of an ideal setting, right? So there's a lot of migrant workers here. Um, So to just really, folks, to just not only not to only recognize it, but to work towards supporting those communities right uh, and that can mean lots of things right uh, it can mean uh, providing support so that those workers could um, themselves organize a union like sort of in the tradition of Dolores Huerta and Cesar Chavez right uh, um, there are no migrant unions in Michigan none which is uh, really interesting right um, so that that's certainly one thing to sort of recognize that there's a lot of people who put a lot of in interest and a lot of energy in, uh, you know, trying to set up like local food councils, and all those kinds of things. But it tends to be disproportionately sort of white folks who who are not connected to the migrant community. And then that's not even part of the sort of the platform with the sort of, you know, promoting sort of local food is around that. Um, So a lot of people who consider themselves foodies. Really promote this notion of like eating local, which I encourage. I think that's a good thing, eating local. Um, but but it doesn't sort of think about critically about what what that means and who benefits and who it doesn't benefit. So just eating a local by itself is not that's not sufficient. Not, it's it's woefully inadequate thing to do if you're not challenging the racialized forms of oppression. Who in terms of the people who are cooking, preparing uh and uh growing the food right um and harvesting the food right so that's i think that's one thing uh another thing is i think is that we need to more of us need to get involved in the process of growing food uh at whatever level that means right so i know one thing that we've been doing when we've got some faith communities in particular around here who've who have taken us up on the offer is to like use some of the land that you know faith communities sit on to grow food whether they use it for their own you know, congregants or they use that food to donate, to support families who are food insecure uh, or donated to pantries to distribute or whatever it might be, right? Kinds of things um, as, you know, just so, so it's not, and it's, and it's more than just like, you know, growing foods, the process of doing it, right? Of recognizing uh, what it takes to do it, sort of the care, again, just having a relationship to the earth in different kinds of ways than the preserving of it and the preparation of it, all those kinds of things. So not only setting up places to churches or whatever faith communities to grow food, but maybe, uh, because they tend to be places that also have like, you know, um, certified kitchens, right. You know, health department certified kitchens, it's like, okay, well, how about if we prepare and preserve food in those spaces as well. Uh, and it's an idea that many people from promoting for years, which is called community kitchens. Right. So people could come a couple times a week to have a community meal, and then they could leave with, you know, uh, Tupperwares of uh, several more meals so that they um, don't have to worry about uh, having healthy food and cooking. it. Because the thing about people who experience poverty is, is that the luxury of the time it takes to maybe make healthy food, is a luxury indeed that people are just, you know, working two, three jobs to make ends meet. And the last thing you wanna think about is, you know, <laughs> cooking food from scratch, right? So so community kitchens would do that. Plus the idea of like teaching, again, the skill of people being able to can food or dry food or, um, uh, um, so all those kinds of things I think are, are, are important that, that, that certainly communities can do. But and then and then maybe just the last thing I would say is that is that it's just really important to to think about <clears throat> we talked about the food system earlier, but to really think about um, how much influence policy has on uh, food production, right? So most people are unaware of the Farm Bill. It only happens like every four to six years, uh, and how much money uh, is which is, so it's, you know, it goes to to that which is literally billions and billions of dollars. Uh, there are portions, small portions of the farm bill that pay for things like you know um, food assistance programs, which have been historically cut in recent decades. Um, which is uh, I guess, again should tell us something about this food system. Um, but uh, it's interesting that even though we we promote this whole idea of the free market and everything. But the United States basically pays. So we subsidize taxpayers, you and I, right? Anybody who pays taxes, we are subsidizing food production that's essentially unhealthy for the land because of the way it's grown and unhealthy for us to eat because of what is being primarily produced and what it ends up being used for, right? Um, So uh, I think people need to pay more attention to and organize around policy stuff Everything from the local level up to the federal level, right? You know, what does, what happens in your community, your city, your county, your state, at the federal level uh, that determines that kind of stuff? Um, and are we really promoting food justice? Are we pr- promoting uh, ecological sustainability? Uh, all those kinds of things that's it's important because the reality is, is that the third largest contributing factor to, to climate change is our agribusiness system behind fossil fuel consumption, uh, uh, it's, it's third, right? Based upon what the data from the, the global um, climate scientists um, have been saying this for, for, for several decades now. So it's not a sustainable way, right? So here's something that's most basic, which is food and we're not growing it and distributing it in a sustainable way um, and that radically has to change. And that's, again, something that all of us can certainly contribute to.
0: Right, I think, you know, both in mentioning that, uh, as well as mentioning, you know, the, the very racialized uh, food system, you've kind of gotten at how this this issue of food justice, of food insecurity, this is very uh, much an area where this idea of intersectionality can really come into play, that uh, these oppressions interrelate that, that not only is our food system you know, designed to like, send out unhealthy food, it's also designed to generally uh, send that unhealthy food to, to marginalized communities, to predominantly uh, communities of color. It's designed to take migrant labor and exploit that. It's designed to exploit the, the earth. Uh, and so it's this system that is you know, very oppressive in so many ways. Um, so, you know, do you have, what what observations and insights have you gained in your work uh, about how uh, intersectionality relates to food justice? Yeah, that's a great question.
1: Um, I think that one thing uh, that I, I did significantly changed my mind about this stuff, uh, again, have, after doing this sort of food justice work for years in Grand Rapids was... Um, we sort of what we sort of just because it was a term that we always used right uh, in having discussions and conversations about food systems is we, we, we talked about food deserts all the time. Right. Like, oh, people live in food deserts, you know, and that generally meant like there were no grocery stores uh, in, in certain neighborhoods, which uh, so I get that that's sort of uh, where people landed on. Right. But it was sort of a sociologist sort of terminology. Right. But it, it, I started real thinking that it's just really not an adequate way of looking at it because, first of all, deserts are thriving ecological systems uh, in and of themselves, right? Um, and there's abundance of food there for the, you know, the the, the species that live within deserts, right? Uh, and you know, that may not include humans, whatever, right? So it is problematic. But the other thing about it is, is that. The whole thing about why grocery stores don't exist in certain neighborhoods, which tend to be disproportionately black, indigenous, Latinx, you know, lower income, you know, neighborhoods, is not because they didn't exist ever. They just haven't existed since the you know the 60s, more or less, when there's you know, when uh urban flight, white urban flight took place, uh, even though that's changing, you know, reversed reversal now with gentrification. Um, is that uh you know again those are policy decisions or the decisions based upon you know the larger agribusiness or the, the food chains um who are building around uh who are building much larger facilities right so if you have a if you have a walmart or a uh i'm not sure what the the big food chain is in 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 new york necessarily but whatever big box Foods chains you have, right? Whole Foods, whatever it might be, right?
0: I think, I build, think Trader Joe's is really popular.
1: Trader. Here. <laughs> okay. So they don't build small facilities. These, these aren't neighborhood based things, so they need land. Right. And so, um, one, when, when cities were really, you know, beginning to practice sort of this mis, mis, misdirected notion of urbanism, right? it meant basically, um, these bigger chain stores were building on the fringes or in the suburbs. So people had to rely on mass transit or, or their own uh, cars to get to uh, places that you know food centers to uh, to purchase food or whatever. So we started saying, calling it a food desert is is really misleading. So we we came up with this term of calling them it, calling it food apartheid. So because it's based on policy uh, and apartheid because it disproportionately impacts. You know, large numbers of people, um, where people have no say in it, right? People in those neighborhoods never had a say in whether or not a grocery store could leave or not leave, right? Uh, it's just not their decision, kind of thing. Um, and when we when we when we talk about food sovereignty, that's just the opposite of right. Food sovereignty, which would be the natural evolution from food justice, is that you would now have. Once you achieve for more food justice, you have food sovereignty where everybody sort of has a say in the kind of food system that they want. Um, it's not a question that there are just policy wonks or a hand small percentage of people who get to make this decision. We all would have that kind of decision-making power if we choose to use it right. So the idea of any kind of sovereignty, food sovereignty, is, is sort of the, the goal, if you will
0: i i suppose that that leads into a a good question, which is what what would a world with food sovereignty look like if you if if you woke up tomorrow and it was the perfectly food sovereign uh world what what would that look like in your mind
1: yeah well, I think what it would look like uh, in many ways would also look like what well, what it would look like to have a more transformed society in general right because i don't again the intersectionality of all this stuff is so 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 strong right there's no way you could sort of look at food sovereignty in a silo you have to look at it around you know economic justice and racial justice and all those other other kinds of systems in many ways so i think a lot of it would look like is that we'd all have more of a role to play in the in the food and food um, and whatever capacity that might mean preparation production Distribution, et cetera. Um, Because if we were living in a world where it was much more transformed, it's not like we would all be working at shitty jobs that didn't pay very well, um, that benefited, again, a small percentage of the population, Um, you know, the capitalist class or whatever you want to call the robber barons, et cetera, right? Um, That means we'd have a lot more leisure. It means we would have a whole lot more connection to the, to the earth. Uh, It would mean that we would see a whole lot more food being grown in our own communities, instead of it being trucked in or flown in from someplace else. Uh, So you might have parks that are integrating food production with just what traditional parks would look like, right? Instead of it just being lots of grass and trees now you have food production taking place in those spaces. Um, And that should happen in every place, right? The same thing with like farmer's markets. So we could really do away with a lot of the big box chain stores if we had more localized uh, food distribution which could be, which means that every sort of neighborhood hub would have sort of its own sort of farmer's market if you will, right? Uh, um, Where, and it's not a question that that people would just come to buy and sell. It also could be a question of where people are exchanging foods. So, like, hey, I got, you know, where I grow food, I I get, you know, my greens, I get a lot of greens. So I'll trade you some greens for some potatoes or whatever, you know, whenever however that would work out, right? right? So all those kinds of things. So I think uh, and then just sort of the preparation again. I mean, again, thinking about the fact that 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 weight staff do not make a living wage, they still get, at least in Michigan, I think it's 295 an hour and then they rely heavily on tips. Uh, And and in most restaurants, it's it's not a sustainable way to live, right? Um, So what about the people who were involved in preparing food and serving food um, were uh, uh, getting a livable wage uh, and that all, that all could happen. I think it would it would, it would more even out level out. Uh, if, if again, we were taking out uh, the $80 billion of food subsidies from the farm bill, instead of saying you're gonna grow all these huge farmers are gonna grow corn, um, which primarily is either for export or for animal consumption and not for people, right? Um, because it's all based upon that sort of commodity system, right? It's a Wall Street trading system, right? It has nothing to do with food, you know, to to sustain people. It's like how can we make a profit off of this stuff, right? If that was, you know, radically altered and dismantled, um then so much of of what we experience around food would be different, right? And so food would be not so much just a point of like nourishing our bodies, but something to really be celebrated and enjoyed and shared and done in community. And, um, you know, lots of festivals and all those kinds of things where, you know, food food eating, food sharing should really be like a, a, a joyous, you know, event and opportunity, right? Instead of just like this thing where I gotta, I gotta shove food in my face in the 20 minutes i have at break or if i even have that you know instead of uh, a lot of our jobs don't doesn't really support and nurture being able to enjoy eating well because we don't have the time kinds of things so again i think a lot of this again it's really connected to the larger need for a, a larger social transformation um but food is a really good place to start because we all need it Most of us really like it. (laughs) And um, um, food is just one of those natural, I always say that if you're a good organizer in general, you have food when you get together with people, right? And uh, so it's not a question that you just have to do food justice work around, but food justice is always, can always be a part of whatever organizing you do. Because if we're saying we're gonna rely on, you know, Uh, uh, you know, food that's, that's grown locally, that cares for the earth, that doesn't exploit people, uh, then we can certainly weave that into it. I mean, and if we want to think about it in religious terms, right. uh, um, Friends of mine who are, you know, pastors and theologians, uh, one particular would say that uh, uh, the, 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 the life of the gospels is really Jesus is sort of, it's like one big floating potluck, right? There was always breaking bread somewhere, right? That's what it is, right? That's, that was the whole thing. Uh, but we don't tend to think about that uh, in, in that way. Wherever wherever people gathered, there was always food that was being shared, right?
0: Uh, so, yeah, no, I think people often don't appreciate how much food means in their lives. So I suppose as a final uh, closing kind of question, uh, you know, if somebody listened to this and found themselves really moved, if somebody has been attending maybe some of our food justice events this this January and they're, they just feel like motivated to get started, what are like, you know, one or two small steps that like people could, people could start to take to start uh, working on this in their own lives? Well, I think if... Um if people
1: have the opportunity to do it. uh, And again, I'm not sure what this looks like in New York, but um, I think doing things like joining a community supported agriculture, like a CSA, right. And that basically means you're supporting a small farmer um, who, who doesn't want to submit to, or be subjected to sort of the market driven food system where they're just having to sell all their produce to like one entity, you know, uh, this way, um, people are basically paying, you know, they might pay 200 bucks or 250 bucks in the spring as an upfront investment. And then they would get basically a, a bag or two of fresh produce every week as, as the season evolves, right? It might be, you know, greens in the spring or berries in the spring and then it would be tomatoes and then, you know, whatever, you know, potatoes or squash in the, in the colder months kinds of things. So I think, you know, joining that is a, is a good way because it's another, it's a good direct way for people to support um, local sustainable agriculture. Um, but it also helps, uh, you know, build that kind of relationship because a lot of CSAs will also let people reduce the cost if they want to volunteer at the CSA, you know, and that can only be like maybe once a month if whatever. But if you go out and do little weeding or hoeing or watering, then I think it's just, you have a better sense of like, well, how does all this stuff work? That allows me to get this lovely produce that you know shows up every week on my at my front door or whatever. Um, I think beyond um, the uh, uh, a CSA, I think you know, particularly for folks uh, like in your your community, right, uh, or any faith community for that way. I think that really looking at like uh, considering using space on the property that you own. And again, that may not be the case in many urban spaces where there's no green, whatever, right? Um, But to be able to grow something, and even if that means just, you know, raised beds or pots or all kinds of whatever, planting fruit trees, whatever, uh, that could be really interesting. Or turning, you know, creating, using the the kitchen you have as a space, not just to do things for receptions or uh, after funerals or whatever, but as a, a regular way for people to share meals right uh, to cook together to uh, send f- food home with people right uh, to share recipes to create a you know congregational cookbook uh, whatever kinds of things right just to whatever skills i'm guessing that every in every of those congregation there are people who have the skills of how to grow, how to preserve, how to prepare, all that kind of stuff has that, have that knowledge. A lot of us don't have that needs to be uh, to be shared, right? So, you know, what would it look like if in July, people are taking pickle canning workshops and then in August, they're doing salsa canning workshops or in October, they're doing applesauce or, you know, whatever. I mean, I think again, that food is, is a powerful tool for bringing people together, for organizing uh, and, and for celebrating each other, right? Um, uh, it should be, uh, and it can be, I think, in a way that's also centers justice and centers sovereignty.
0: So Jeff, I thank you so much for your time uh, joining us today and for uh, sharing all this wisdom. Uh, it's been really enjoyable to get to listen to. If folks wanted to uh, find out about some of your work, is there places online that they can uh, best find you?
1: yeah i mean if they if people either went to the grid site the grid.org site or to the grand rapids people's history project um that would be the easiest way to find out and if they wanted more stuff on the food justice workshops i'd be happy to send people um basically a pdf of like a 120 page sort of thing that is fairly self-explanatory in terms of trying to wrap their heads around what what the current food system looks like and how do we get out of that uh so uh, I would say either of those um, pages, or if they just wanted to go to my personal, you know, Facebook page, that's also fine, and message me there to to have a begin a conversation about any of the stuff, or just to find out more resources. So,
0: okay, thanks so much once again, uh, and thank you also to all of our listeners. Uh, as usual, we always appreciate any you know likes or subscriptions or uh, follows and all that good stuff. It helps us know that people are appreciating the work that we're putting into this podcast. So thank you so much, Jeff, and thank you to all of our listeners. Thank you, Emperor.